This is Terms of Reference. I'm your host, Stephen Laddick. Brad Lyon is a communications and knowledge management specialist. Currently, he is the community development lead and knowledge manager at the Rocky Mountain Institute Carbon War Room, where he is contributing to the launch of an online community of practice that targets renewable energy practitioners in the Caribbean and other island states. Brad is also a consultant at the World Bank, where, over the last six years, he's worked in different capacities and contracts with the Latin American and Caribbean Urban and Disaster Risk Management Unit. His main contributions at the World Bank have related to building a knowledge management strategy to influence and encourage knowledge exchange across climate and disaster resilience investments in the Caribbean. Prior to the bank, Brad worked in a hospitality-focused startup company as a business developer and relationship manager, where he created the company's first environmental and social responsibility campaign and built marketing campaigns to target new clients and increase revenue. I spoke with Brad in Washington, D.C. Hi, Brad. Thank you so much for being on the Terms of Reference podcast today. Thank you, Stephen. Glad to be here. Easy question to start. Where are you sitting in today? Now you fly all over the place. Where are you sitting? <laughs> Good question. I'm actually uh, sitting here at D.C. Um, I've started a home-based office doing a bit of consulting right now for the past uh, uh, year and a half. Uh, yeah. You are like so many of us uh, in this business. You have your fingers in a lot of different pies at the same time. Why don't you start by telling us um, what it is that you're working on right now? Yeah, I've been, um, you know, consulting uh, for the World Bank for about six, six and a half years. Uh, right now, I'm just doing some consulting services with this risk insurance facility that's working in the Caribbean and Central America, trying to de-risk uh, catastrophes related to excess rainfall, hurricanes, and earthquakes. And then um, for the past year, I started working with a nonprofit called the Carbon War Room, very interesting Richard Branson startup and is now, uh, rather than working specifically on aviation sector, they've started a development project in the Caribbean, uh, which again focuses on renewable energy transition. So I'm working on building a community practice, trying to bring about 15 countries together and some other experts to really learn how to share knowledge and best practices and so that's over the time that's really I've learned to focus my expertise and is on this communications and knowledge management side, as they call it. And both of the things that you just described sound like they have an environment slash climate characterization to them. Is that correct? Yeah. And, you know, it's, you know, it's been funny being at the World Bank sitting there and how the whole organization has restructured itself and some of the nomenclature that comes around and, and you know starting off in 2010 there it was disastrous management which is kind of a, a new development field in itself uh, you know a lot of what we talked about was disaster management and just responding to things and reacting and now over t- about 20 30 years changing that conversation of where the development aid is going to prevention and this is really where disaster risk management has created its niche. But uh, if you look at those two sides, a lot of the money is going still into the reaction of it rather than the prevention. However, what's happening due to a lot of the, you know, the COP21, the climate finance um, and all of this, that that same term of disaster resilience is now called climate resilience. So how you sell and get money and really talk to donors to how you talk to clients has changed really quickly in those past five years. So to answer your question, yeah, because of the fact that these are quote-unquote natural disasters, there are many of them, and you have to really speak to that from a, a cli- with a climate lens. 
One of the things I love to do, and, and you're familiar with this, is to, you know, you're, you're like so many of us in this business, and that when we try to talk to someone about what it is that we do, we often get like blank stares or, or you know, people ask, you know, are you working for the CIA or something like that? So when you say something like de-risk catastrophes, what does that actually end up looking like on a day-to-day basis? What does that look like in real life? I'm in my, on my personal day-to-day or for... Yeah, I mean, for your personal day-to-day, you know, I'm, what does this look like for you? Are you uh, writing reports or are you giving presentations? Are, I mean, are you building dikes for someone? You know, what does it look like for you? You know, it's a, it's a, it's a good question. And maybe this is where I've kind of driven myself into this, uh, communications field because a lot of what happens in these technical, de-risking, you know, uh, financial risk or whatnot, speaking of, how do you actually communicate that to people on the ground? And a lot of what you, the World Bank, for example, you know, selling its services, essentially, you need to be able to say why, in fact, they, are a good partner to work with. And that's really communicating, first of all, what is the, the problem and then identifying that. And in many ways, they may not know what that is. I mean, there's a lot of problems I don't know until I have a conversation with someone and they can really help to to figure that out. You know, So I think when you start looking at the fact of huge amounts of rain coming through every year, I mean, you live in Central America right now. And you may note that there's a little bit of rain, a little bit of rain, but that rain over time, even if it's small, can accumulate. And that damages of, although they're isolated and small over, over the course of a year, can equate to the same amount as a hurricane that comes through. So it's really looking at seeing, uh, the aggregate amount of data that comes through and then communicating that into a, a message. And so that's really where I've kind of helped to try to bring that technical language into a way that can be understood by other different audiences. And so then what are you creating? Um, Websites, social media output, reports, TV ads, radio ads? uh, What's the output look like? Yeah, I mean, it could be facilitating a workshop that comes around to bring different people around together to talk about the issues, look at things potential solutions. Uh, it's also coming up with communication pieces that could be a, a video, a brochure, um, social media, perhaps. You know, really a lot of that, specifically in the World Bank, is a lot of this kind of donor-facing communications. So they have very routine meetings that happen and really trying to package those up into key messages that are really focusing on what the impacts of development dollars and so what you're characterizing is a potentially uh, technical and highly complex conversation. And what I know, at least, you know, the, the sort of the political environment in the United States, maybe, maybe in Europe as well, that there isn't really the leisure or the environment to be able to have that kind of complex conversation. So do you find that your work gets boiled down into sound bites? Is that another name for key messages or, or, or what? I don't think it is. I think the conversation is really ongoing. And, and and I think, especially, again, coming from that disastrous management, I think there's a really good conversation happening to specifically with donors. And I'm, I'm, I'm really happy to have been part of that conversation to bring light to this prevention side. And, and I think that's where we start thinking about every decision of what we do when it comes to where I'm going to build my house. Do I want to put it next to this river or do I want to put it on this hill? 
I mean, simple questions like that. Over time, you don't have the, the, the leisure of being able to make the decisions. You may not have the, the money to even make that decision. And a lot of these developing countries, and especially in these urbanized cities, they're just moving into places that are essentially accumulating risk. And so I, I think that it's that conversation is never dulling. It's only becoming more and more apparent, uh, you know, and the fact of it, I think it's in 2030, you can check, but do some fact checking after 2030 and 2050. It's like 70% of the world's population is going to be in urbanized cities, you know, and think about those mostly being near the water. So what does that do when you start considering about sea level rise and you talk about different, uh, you know, seismic activity that's concentrated in a lot of capital cities. So all of these things were never going to go away. They're only becoming much more apparent of how much attention needs to be focused on that. So I mean, that's the conversation, but, you know, it, it does get difficult to talk about that, especially in the States, because people don't want to uh, either accept cl- uh, climate change or they don't necessarily feel like it impacts them in ways. Uh, and, and that's really due to the political arena that we, uh, you know, we live in here. But when you speak to the rest of the world, especially donors and even other clients, countries in Caribbean or, for example, Central America, uh, this really is the conversation. They know how the weather can impact and how it's increasingly getting more erratic. Uh, so there's a hunger for that conversation and there's a hunger for knowledge. And I think that's what I think is important about thinking, how do you really transfer that knowledge? How do you get people to engage in that conversation? So. It's not a matter of sound bites. It's like, what's that hook? And how do you have a meaningful conversation? And that's where I think, you know, making these connections, creating an environment where people can have that conversation is really important. Again, you know, that's where it gets into the, these Caribbean. You think about this renewable energy in the Caribbean. These countries or islands are 90,000 people, 100,000 people, um, and a bit isolated for obvious reasons. But there's a, again, there's a hunger to talk about how do I transition my economy into renewable energy? So again, there is this constant desire to, to connect and, and communicate. We're humans, right? So how do you just facilitate that relationship and then the communication? And is there a moment that you can think of when you're, you're giving one of these presentations or, or at a conference or something where, you know, it just is a total home run and you, you know, everybody got it and there's going to be actionable items that, you know, come out of it. Or is it a, um, you know, it's always kind of seen the slow grind of bureaucracy, the slow machinery of these large organizations. You know, so much of it is so hard to know, especially, you're, you know, working in DC sometimes living in an, you know, in an office, you don't necessarily get down to the field to see what the, how the project's being implemented, especially when you talk about large infrastructure projects. However, going down, we had an environmental and social impact assessment training, which brought together, again, like eight or nine countries. Again, it's just really a matter, matter of getting the right people, the right room at the right time. You all of a sudden sit back and you see this great conversation and people sharing how they've been doing environmental impact assessments in St. Lucia, for example, versus Jamaica. And this kind of just all of a sudden just breathing this space and there's this, this fire uh, about people really wanting to learn from each other, you know, and this is when you step back and say, you know what, we don't need to be here. We just need to let them kind of work together. 
you know? And so that's really where I feel like that convening is so important to bring. That was great to see that fire. People get really excited about environmental impact assessments, you know, because this is really what's saving lives at the end of the day is how, and social impacts, right? How we can actually not just build a bridge, but actually think about how that's going to be holistically considered within that community or the areas around that being jungle or whatnot. So now take us to the Carbon War Room. Um, you know, everything that we know about Richard Branson is essentially the opposite of the World Bank, right? I mean, so how does that work juxtapose against your work at the World Bank? What, what, what are the differences? What does it look like? You know, it's funny. I was actually um, in Rio Plus 20 back in 2000. 10, I believe, and there was a islands meeting uh, of which Richard Branson was sitting on the panel, and there was another woman, I believe, from the U.S., but he was basically put on the spot in this panel and said, you know what, yes, I want to help islands to transition, and he's like, I'll commit to one island, and the woman sat next to him, she goes, why just one? Why not 10? And so he'd been put on the spot, and I was there in this room when it was happening, so basically, to commit to give support, either, I guess, technical and financial support to help an island transition to 100% renewables. And I think at that time, he had been working on reducing carbon emissions in the aviation sector and the other transportation sectors. But this is a really different commitment, right? This is a, a political commitment with a, a sovereign country or island, right? Um, so I was in there and then Later on, about uh, just a year ago, I ended up becoming invited, actually, one of my old uh, Peace Corps friend and also one of my peers at the World Bank brought me into this project, which has now grown into the Islands Energy Program in the Caribbean. And they have also branched in with Clinton Foundation and the Rocky Mountain Institute. So it's this really strong partnership that's working there. Richard Branson just kind of seeds money and lets these things take off and really helps the market. Market really shows its favor to these initiatives. But, and that's the challenge is this organization, the Carbon War, and particularly, they want to see the same acceleration and speed that you do with any sort of market initiative. But what we've had to do internally is communicate um, that this is actually a development project. You're working across many sectors. You know, you're working with a lot of different interests, um, both from, say, the utility side versus the political side. You know, there's that dance that happens, what you want to do politically and what is actually technically feasible, for example. So that's been interesting to see that internal conversation and actually how this organization has evolved over time to focus on this on these islands. So how do you divide your time um, between Carbon War Room and the World Bank and your personal stuff or whatever else other professional commitments you have? I mean, are you, you're like a lawyer, you know, you're building every six minutes or 15 minutes. Do you build by the day? Are you keeping track of things really closely or, or how are you uh, managing that aspect of your consulting life? Yeah, you know, it's been really hard, especially, you know, past year and a half, just becoming, you know, very independent. Um, I've worked with a, a few coaches and really trying to build in certain skills. And that time management is like key, that taking that, you know, 10, 15 minutes of planning every morning, you know, it's been reminded to me that Ben Franklin used to do that, sit in his solitude with peace and just do that planning. Um, and that's been really helpful and grounding over the past time past a uh, few months especially 
But uh, coming down to your question, yeah, I, I do a record every day of how much time I'm spending on this and that. And, and, and especially because you're always having to do business development for yourself, especially being independent. You need to be focusing part of that time on, you know, updating your LinkedIn profile, reaching out to different people in your network, you know, meeting this person and that. But, uh, you know, these contracts are, are usually based on days, right? So you have 50 days with this project, another 50 days with this project. I do keep a really kind of strict record of how many hours I spend each day. And then at the end of each month, I'll total those hours to how many days and then build on that. So per project, per day, and then per month. And so when you're, you're planning your day, are you able to be very disciplined and, and break it up between your clients or between your the, the tasks that you have for that day? Or do you find that you're kind of at the whim of your clients and, you know, you're putting out fires or, you, you know, they're calling up and saying, hey, I need you to do this today. What, how do you manage that? Yeah, there really is that. I, I There's a lot of that in, in the World Bank. There's lots of demands that come out you have to just quickly respond to. Um, less and less I've had to do that. But I have, you know, still working with a team. So even if you are somewhat isolated to working on your day-to-day schedule, there really is a need to create a, you know, timeline or project, you know, plan of action to put that together. So I started working with this tool called Asana, for example. Um, this is with this team, ASANA, which also always means posture and yoga. And that's really helpful to really kind of think about the whole month and go through regularly with your team. What are those deliverables that you have to do? Make sure the timelines are appropriate and you're getting the right information that you need because you can't work in isolation completely. So I I think it's better about being proactive um, and make sure you're communicating. And a lot of that means, you know, kind of upward managing. So before I take us down another path in this conversation, uh, you know, a, a few seconds ago, you, you you put it really great where you always have to keep feeding the fire, right? And so I'm wondering, in your life, as you're looking in the future, you know, how much time do you spend making sure that that next gig is going to happen or that you're able to continue to grow as a consultant? Are you, are, you, are you leaning on your network? Are you writing proposals? Are you out there searching, you know, different types of sites? Or, you know, what do you do to continue to develop business for yourself and make sure that you're continuing to grow and thrive? You know, it's interesting. Maybe this isn't the direct answer to your question, but I also teach yoga on the side. And yesterday I spoke with this guy who worked in development for many years. And he was talking about Global Witness, which um, he says is a great organization, but doesn't pay much. And, and I've thought about that just quickly, like how we get compensated in not just monetary ways, but in the fact that we are, you know, doing good, that we're part of challenging the status quo, part of challenging the way that business gets done, part of challenging corruption, like that happens within every government. And, and I thought, you know, less and less the, the money's important for obvious reasons, especially if you got some student loans in your bag. It's a, a difficult question to, to, to answer. I'm in that process right now after taking some time off really this year, trying to set some, some new goals. And what I realized that I haven't done in some time, you know, you quickly just go down a path and you get on this boat and you don't really know where it's going and you just kind of trust that it will land in a place. And I think it did bring me to some higher ground, but I'm really looking at taking the time to, to vision and see what's really core. What have I gained from that? 
past five years? What are some strengths that I should focus on? And what particular sectors do I want to be working in? And I think like we start at the beginning, all of these do kind of focus around this kind of climate adaptation, resilience, energy. So uh, I think that's where I'm starting to focus my attention more. But I think taking that time again, like I mentioned at the beginning of every day, taking that time every three, six months, maybe, and really set those long-term goals. Perhaps you could give me some guidance afterwards. <laughs> so you've actually kind of set the stage perfectly for the next question here. You know, you said you've been looking back reflectively over the last five or six years, kind of looking at your career. How did you get into this business? You know, did you find yourself, you know, when you were 14 or in high school and you say, oh, I know, I want to go work for the World Bank um, and, and travel to these exotic places? Or did you just kind of find yourself here one day? Like, How did you get here? Yeah, it's funny. I don't think I even knew the World Bank existed until I got there. I had the, uh, after I graduated undergrad, I had the opportunity to either go to the Peace Corps or become a flight attendant. And the Peace Corps accepted me. So that was my, that became the boat that I took. I, I studied business and this whole thing about being, everything being driven by, by money, by profits, by revenue. And I just thought there's something wrong with this, you know, when we're trying to serve people, but we're being driven by money. So I really took that, that boat of looking at the Peace Corps, Peace Corps to just to, to reflect in a lot of things and, and, for me, really get to the bottom of the barrel, like what's down there. And I know coming from New England, you know, this is a very privileged part of the world and what's happening on the other side. And got to opportunity to go to, to West Africa, to Guinea, Conakry. And over that time, I remember sitting there, you know, there's one gas station where you can buy cold Coca-Cola. Everybody hangs out there. You see a lot of the international development workers coming through and this, you know, not many white people in this village. So I ended up being, somebody came up and started talking to me from uh, the World Food Program. And they said, oh, we're just, you know, this is what we're doing. We went up to this small village. And I'm like, well, how is it? She's like, this is place that is uh, not just impoverished, but there's some real issues of hunger up here and we need to bring some aid here. And I was like, of course, how do you guys not know this? What you guys are just coming in here every like three years or, you know, there's striking things that you see when you're in the fields and you're in these places and you have no way of communicating that. And when you do, the outlets you do have are not necessarily going to get to the top. And, and then I started seeing some other organizations that are working in another area and the Peace Corps itself working kind of on its own channels. And how are we not convening and working together? And it really upset me thinking that there's people somewhere around the world and no one's here on the ground to actually see how those could interface together and support each other. So that really took me back after two years thinking about what to do next is going into grad school and try to understand what are those dilemmas? Why is that working? What is the, you know, what are this donor competition about? You know, because this person is getting money and this person getting money. So we have to prove this and that. And it's not in everybody's interest to be sharing and working together. So I think to answer your question, I, that's how it kind of got me interested in this, in this field of, of doing good, right? Of humanitarian work. And knowing that for many people, it is, is often a business, you know, a lot of people live really well and operate for their own interests. And that's 
also something that is striking getting into this into this field. But for the most part, I've been really warmed by the you know the altruism and the tension to collaborate and work together. But I know on the ground that's really hard to do, uh, and I think that's where a lot of our work should be towards is how do we really connect um, and work thoughtfully on these topics. What's the biggest fail that you've seen over the last 10 years of your career, you know, and what did you do or or what was done in order to sort of bring that project back in line or or do something about that fail? The short answer is not following through, you know, during my problem or let's, you know, help, we'll intervene for these three months and then we'll walk away and give up. Um, I don't know if I want to bring up any specific stories, but uh, I think that's routine. You know, there's an end of a project that's five years and then you're done or end of a project that's a year. And then you kind of walk away. You do your bit of evaluation, but you send that forward Who's going to pick that up or who's going to really follow through? Um, I'll give you an example from the Peace Corps. And I was very critical about this part that you are in this kind of two year cycle. And someone else comes in right afterwards who wants to make their own relationships, have their own agenda. And they're told that they can do whatever they want. Just start connecting with the community and see what identifying those needs. But after two years, you really have an opportunity to do that. And there's no bridge to connect and build off each other. So I think that's what's really frustrating. And that happens in all the organizations that I've worked in. You don't really know what the impact is. You're just trying to get something done. And I think that we that could be flipped or somehow thinking about what that impact and checking on that at the end. There's a lot of that that doesn't happen. You only do it in the aftermath or it's a third party that does it. So I don't think we really correct our systems as much or, or, or change as much as we need to. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm trying to coin a phrase myself that we need to move away from evaluation and and actually start performing. Like, you know, stop evaluating, start performing. But that's a that's another topic. So flip side of the coin here, what are you most psyched about for the next sort of five years? I mean you've you've built your career, you're you're you know, you're ten years in. What what's the future look like for you? Is there a gig you're looking forward to? Is there a particular piece of technology you're excited to use? Is there a network you want to get connected with? What's what what are you psyched about for the future? You know, staying on this kind of climate, I have a lot of different interests and I could go down few different answers with that question. Yeah, um, I think that the the climate financing, if you look at the, the Green Climate Fund, what the countries have really committed to, it's like $100 billion of climate financing per year. And you think about how much money that is. And that's really the, the private sector implementing all those projects, right? But it's countries borrowing this money or being given this money to get these things done. And seeing how that money is going to be spent and, and that's going to impact the next 20, 30 years, 50 years of uh, the development of many of these countries. So I think that's really important for all of us to kind of tune in where this money is, what it's going to. And I think that interface, specifically when you're talking about public money to the private sector, that really interesting, like where that happens, what kind of deals are brokered, are they clean? Are they not? Uh, I think that would really 
intrigued me. I'm also thinking about climate change itself and how people talk about global warming daily and how we need to adapt to it. I'm also just wondering if somebody's just going to come up with this like super molecule that shoots up in the atmosphere and just like freezes the country, freezes the world by accident. So I'm kind of curious how that science is working at the same time as development money. So a couple more questions for you. First is why independent? You know, you, you found yourself a little, just a little bit a while ago, a year or so ago, you know, you made the choice to, to sort of make the leap and do it on your own. You know, you get your home office, you're, you're kind of moving things forward rather than sort of moving down the institutional path. Why'd you make that choice and, and, and how'd you make it happen? Yeah, well, I think now I am looking forward to a little bit more institutional, a, a more of a, a day-to-day routine with a, the same team for or organization. But I really needed to step back. I think there was a lot of things that were going on, particularly with some restructuring of different organizations and merging and that um, I just needed to get out and reflect a bit and, and work on what was really important to me um, and figure what that out, figure out what that is as well. Yeah, I mean, I see that more and more that people do take time, you know, time off, whether that's a few months, year, you know, and, and really say that's okay. And I think I keep hearing that from a lot of other people, you know, at this, you know, we want to do wor- work and do good and kind of feverishly getting these things done, but taking that time for yourself, you know, every so often or at the end of the day is really critical and not getting delusioned and really thinking about what the big picture is is important. So. The last question I have for you is one that I ask every guest here on the Terms of Reference podcast, or at least I try to, is, you know, you've been at it for a while, but there's a lot of people listening to this podcast who are either in a master's degree right now or a bachelor's degree, or they're kind of listening and they're interested in transitioning from another sector into the development sector, the humanitarian aid sector. What are your critical pieces of advice for creating a sustainable and successful career in this profession? I think it's the development itself. It's hard to say I'm an international development practitioner, right? And I think even that you need to get down a little bit more granular. What is it that you do? Having those technical skills, let's say I'm a communications specialist, for example, or I do risk disaster risk assessments, or, you know, having, uh, I work in evaluation, project management, something of that nature that really holds you to give value to the organization or team that you'll be working in. So I think rather than seeing just international development, see yourself as something that you already are. So moving in from the private sector or from other previous experience, there's something there, probably one or two skills that are really core and kind of redefine that in a different realm. And I think that's the thing is like communicating marketing professional to uh, communications or public affairs. You know, these are all of the same skills set, right? But it's really just kind of applying it to that new world, if you will. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been a great conversation. Thank you, Stephen. You've been listening to the Terms of Reference podcast from aidpreneur.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes.